You're listening to The Science of Storytelling, presented by Pressboard, a show about marketing, media, and the people making it happen. Your host is Jared Grimm. On today's Science of Storytelling episode, I'm talking to Allison Witherspoon. Allison is the Vice President, Marketing Communications and Media for Nissan North America. Allison and I chat about her love of cars from a very young age, how an international marketing course changed her career forever, and the uncompromising qualities of the one and only Brie Larson. Enjoy the show. Allison, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's. I'm going to set a bit of a stage because it could be completely different if someone looks at it in a week, a day, or even a month. So, because where, everything changes every day, anyway. Every so. day, every hour. Yeah. So, where uh, where are you right now? I am in Nashville, Tennessee. So that is where Nissan North America's headquarters are are located. So Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah, out of your house, I'm assuming. I yes, I am working from home. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, and what was your day like today? So compared to, let's say, a year ago, what was your day like today? Oh, a year ago, actually, I was in New York and we were getting ready for the Formula E race, um, which we have a team, the Nissan Formula E team. So that was very different and, and a complete 180 from where we are today. Um, so my days are usually spent of just back-to-back Zoom meetings, and it's anything from reviewing creative and, and having creative discussions on campaigns or um, social media to operational discussions about how we're shifting our business plan for the year. Um, I have a call with some dealers later on. We, I have a dealer marketing subcommittee in order for me to make sure that I have dealer voice as a sounding board, you know, for, for all the work that we're doing. So talking with them. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of zooms. It's, it's probably 18 hours of zooms. I wish it was more exciting. I wish I was at the formula E race. Um, but you know, I'm used to it by now at this point. Well, and so with all these zoom calls, so I have two kids, they did online school for the last few months and I mean, I've been on conference calls my whole life, so I'm a bit used to, but watching, kids go through this screen for hours i see this like tension that starts to build up in them i'm curious if if you found that for yourself or your team and if you found a way to release that stress in any way yeah i i i personally have really felt that and especially i would say over the past probably month and a half the zoom fatigue has really kind of set in for me um, you know, so for me, it's just, it's about trying to stay active and, and not be, not feel so confined. I don't like confined spaces to begin with. And so feeling confined behind a laptop, I've just tried to stay active as much as I can and, and make sure that I'm, you know, working out and, and going for runs and walks whenever I can for my team. We actually talked a lot about this because the challenge is that everyone's working from home, but then you have all of life is also on top of that. So you know, similar to your situation, you know, people that have kids at home and when they were doing homeschooling while, while school was going on, and even now, that is added on to an entire full day of work. And so in conversation with a lot of people on my team, we just, we started to block out two hours, you know, right in the middle of the afternoon, 11 to 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. and just said no Zooms, no calls, no meetings, you know, everyone, if you need to get through emails, which also started to become a, a concern because you're in Zooms all the time. 
So, you know, catch up on emails. If you need to work on presentations or decks, use that time. If you need to take care of homeschooling or taking care of your kids or running to get toilet paper, you know, those types of things, you know, use this time. Um, and we'll, you know, we've all been respectful of it. And I think it started to help. Um, it, you know, it definitely was adjustment. I think at first, you know, every, everyone liked the idea of, you know, kind of rolling into work in your pajamas and, and that. And then once it, once it was clear that this was going to be um, a semi-permanent situation, then you start to really figure out how to make it work for you. And I, and I think that's where we all are now, at least for me and then for my team. I think we're, we're starting to be comfortable with it and, and, and we figured out how to make it work and what are the things that you need to do in order to, to stay um, healthy and, and sane while we're going through this. Yeah, and that's interesting, the idea of giving people a break, a specific, it's almost you're, you're allowing them to, by saying, hey, we're not going to do this at that time, it gives them the ability to, okay, I'm going to go for a run. Yep. Because we do have this, you know, social pressure to always be efficient, always be productive, always be on a call. And we need someone to allow us that space sometimes. Yeah. And it was kind of, you know, it's this, it's kind of this covenant between us. It's, we're not setting up meetings and we, you know, we, we talked with our agency and our other partners that we work very closely with and we've all done it. And, you know, and it, I think, and I think you're right. And it, it's been very well received. And I think it's, um, you know, it, it was appreciated that, you know, one, there was acknowledgement that this was going on, that it, it was, we're not in business as usual. We, we just aren't. And so again, how do you make it work for you? How do you get the productivity out that you need, which is important, but more importantly, how do you keep people motivated in a very difficult time for a myriad of reasons? Yeah, with so many distractions as well. I can imagine that that gets difficult and everyone has a different personal situation. It's not often that you'd run into, hey, a kid might run into my office when you're at the <laughs> yeah. office. So, yeah. uh, so you're the vice president, marketing communications and media at Nissan. Yes. So I'm curious, did you fall in love with cars first or did you fall in love with marketing first? It was, a I think my first love was actually cars. I, I have a ton of passions, um, but cars was a very early one. And it started when I was a little girl and I was probably six or seven in my parent station wagon in the very back, probably not buckled up. But I looked at the window and I saw a Porsche 911. And of course it's a night, this iconic car but I was fascinated by the design and I was fascinated by the headlamps specifically. And I just, I started counting these cars and it drove my parents crazy. Um, but I, it was just, it's just stuck out in my head. And then obviously when you turn 16, you know, I got my license right away. You know, getting your own car means you can get away from your parents. You can go visit your boyfriend. Um, you know, it just meant a lot of freedom. So I've always had this, this relationship with cars Marketing then was my second love. And I went to the University of Missouri in Columbia and I started out as an accounting major. And it was just something that I had a natural knack for. I, you know, I enjoyed budgeting. I enjoyed, you know, the financial process. Um, but I took an international advertising class, which were, which was kind of a prerequisites, you know, for the business school and just fell in love. I absolutely fell in love with it. And overnight I changed my major. And I knew right then and there that that's exactly what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And it was, it was kind of that aha moment. It, um, you know, I think it, it definitely freaked out my parents <laughs> at the time, but I, you know, it was, it was something I was just drawn into. And again, it just, I was so fascinated by the potential and by the opportunity that was there. So 
cars were the first love and then marketing, marketing came along and I was able right out of college, I was able to get a job consulting for Mercedes Benz. So the two, the two, you know, they collided with each other and then fate just took over from there actually. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I like this idea of these moments and then you have a why in the road. So if you don't take that international marketing course, yeah. it's, it's highly likely that you're an accountant right now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and it's so funny because when I talk to, you know, when I, when I tell people that story, even my friends from college, they're like, you were never going to be an accountant. Huh. <laughs> they're like, this is, this is what you were meant to do. Yeah. Mine, I fell in love with marketing because there was this show called Who's the Boss? Uh, yep, yep. So Angela Bauer was the, yeah. right? That's right. I, yeah, that's right. I totally forgot about that. Yeah. So she, uh, it was like the 80s. And I remember who's the boss and everyone else like just watched the show and enjoyed the show. And I thought, I want Angela Bauer's job. I want that exact <laughs> job. She was the head of an ad agency. She had started her own ad agency. She remember she wore those like suits with the big shoulder yeah, with the power shoulders. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if that's the part I wanted, but I did. I fell in love with marketing. <laughs> and I just, I, wanted that. <laughs> I just stayed with it. Yeah. I, and, I, I did. and isn't it interesting how that kind of happens? Because I remember again, when I was a little kid, I played businesswoman and I played, you know, sitting at, at the, you know, at the, the phone with the big buttons on it. And all I wanted to do was just talk on the phone and kind of boss people around. And it was, it was kind of like, I wasn't playing with dolls. I wasn't, you know, I was actually playing businesswoman. And it's kind of amazing how these little hints of things start to reveal themselves, you know, as, you know, as you get older and as, as you get closer and closer to, to starting a career, they just start to reveal themselves. Yeah. And so you fall in love with marketing, then you head down that path, you're working yeah. for, I mean, you fell in love with a Porsche 911 as a car, <laughs> and then you worked at Mercedes Benz, the your your taste in automobiles was quite high right from the beginning. Did you so what path? I know that you you spent some time in Japan. So where did that fall within this career path? Yeah, so I um I worked for I worked for Mercedes Benz. I was a consultant, and then they actually facilitated and asked me to move to the agency because they were looking for someone with my skill set um, to to help on the product side with the agency. And I knew that I wanted to get creative experience, and I and I loved that process. And so I worked at the agency. I also worked at BMW's agency, and I had a lot of got a lot of experience building websites and big website platforms and you know, CRM, Super Bowl. Um, and then, and then I got a position leading Volvo's global agency team, which took me to Amsterdam. Hmm. So I lived in Amsterdam for a couple of years, um, leading their global agency team, spending a lot of time in Sweden. Um, but, but understand, but really seeing how marketing and messaging works in different parts of the world and, and the importance of cultural nuance as part of that. And then while I was in Amsterdam, I got a phone call from Nissan and they were looking for a head of marketing for Infinity, which I went from New York to Amsterdam to Nashville, Tennessee, um, which I think that was the bigger culture shock at the time, actually. Um, you know, I was the head of marketing for Infinity for three years. And then the, um, the global CMO for Nissan approached me and asked me if I was interested in coming to work in Japan and really being his number two. And of course, I, I jumped at the opportunity. So I was in Japan for two years in 2017 through 2000, you know, right at the end of 2018. Um, and I was, I was leading the global creative strategy, global media, 
um, sponsorships. I was working and negotiating all of our global media deals across the alliance with Facebook and Google and Twitter. I led our heritage collection, which is all about the you know, acquisition and restoration of all of our heritage cars and making sure that we're able to create that legacy um, for all of, you know, for all the models that have ever been on sale around the world, which, you know, I, that was the, that was the probably part of my responsibility that I didn't have the most time to do, but it was probably my favorite thing to do because I just love to be, you know, I, I just loved the thinking about all the great cars that we've had. And then also how do you secure that, you know, in the future for whoever was going to have my position in, you know, 20 years. So they didn't have to go hunting like I did sometimes. Well, there's this interesting thing with with cars, with automotive in general, where there's a lot of emotional connection with the history. So my first car was a 1970 Camaro. And, nice. Yeah, and my dad, I like imagine being a, a 16-year-old and having a 1970 Camaro muscle car. But what it really was to me was uh, my dad bought me the body. It didn't have an engine. And then okay. we put a 350 engine into it. But what it really was, was like this bonding moment with my dad. We spent three months putting this engine in and ended up with a car at the end of it. But to me, that car, I'll never sell it because of this moment in time that I'm fixed to. I'm curious if if you've had any emotional connections to your first car or any other vehicles along the way. I think the one that I the one that I have the most emotional connection with is is a Nissan actually and that I'm not even that's not even and this was even before I worked for the company but it was a 300Z Turbo um, which is this great roadster and Mm -hmm. it was my older brother had it and it was pearl white red interior T tops and he had it and it was just the coolest car it was so much fun to drive that's how I learned how to drive a stick shift. Um, but so much fun to drive and you just, you felt great in it. You felt very confident, but he, but it was also my dad's favorite car. And so there was, and it was essentially, I had, you know, two brothers and, and two sisters and, and my dad, and he raised all of us, but you know, it was, it was kind of this, the, this car was so meaningful for both of my brothers, my dad and I, and it was, it was just this thing that we all kind of bonded over because we just, we love to drive it. Um, and so, and actually my nephew has it now it's, it's been in, it's stayed in the family. So that's the, you know, it's, it's, I think, I think that's what I really love about automotive. You, you do have this emotional connection. There's always a story about cars. It's what was the first car? Um, you know, some of the, you know, a lot of life moments take place in cars. And so that's what it's, that's why I enjoy as a marketer, I enjoy that because that's something that you can tap into those, those emotions. Yeah. I mean, in automotive, we talk about specs and things like that a lot, but there it tends to be this really emotional connection. I'm curious how we're coming up to this time. You've you've planned out, I imagine, your marketing. Like if we're talking last year, I imagine you already have plans for what this summer is going to look like. There's the I don't know what the cycle is on like new models coming out, but I imagine it's not that quick, right? No, I think usually, I mean, it depends on the, it depends on the company, but usually, you know, a full changeover of model takes anywhere, you know, from five to seven years. Um, so I think, you know, those it's, it's not quick, like in some of the other industries, I think our plans, you know, our, our plans were very different than what we're going through now. What, what has been exciting and, you know, we're, we're still working through how do you do this in a COVID environment, but we have uh, in the next 18 months, over 60% of our lineup is going to be refreshed. And that's huge. 
that that's a massive thing in automotive. And so, you know, that, that gives us a lot to talk about. It gives us a lot of brand moments and it gives us a way to um, show that we're making change and we're evolving as a company. And so that's very exciting. You know, COVID happened right as we were getting ready to start this product offensive. So in March, we were getting ready to launch the all new Sentra. We had NCAA was Final Four was one of our main marketing platforms. And, you know, kind of around the 10th, it became clear that, you know, that was, that was not going to happen and they canceled the NCAA. And I think, you know, it, it was quickly clear that having a retail or a product message was just not going to resonate with consumers right at the very beginning of, of this pandemic. And so trying to sell a car was just going to be tone deaf. And I think the other thing too, is that when COVID happened, the automotive industry dropped overnight because dealerships couldn't operate because they weren't considered essential business, you know, outside of the service part. And so, you know, to try to be, you know, you, you, the call to action couldn't be go visit your dealer. Um, so we had to take a much different approach. And so we, we quickly shifted, you know, a, a plan that had been in place, you know, we had been working on for almost a full year. Um, and we were right at the very beginning of launching that. And, you know, it was, it was obviously, you know, so much work and so much time by, you know, the team had gone into that and, but you, but you have to be able to pivot. And so, you know, in the mat, in a matter of hours, we shifted into COVID relating messaging. We were talking about, you know, what we could do, you know, if you needed to get your car serviced, our service centers are open. You know, if you're, if you need a car, if you're an essential worker, we have um, payment deferral options for you. We have kind of special pricing and it took on a very different approach. And, you know, and I think now that we're a few months into this and we're starting to see in some of the key digital metrics that consumers are starting to come back and they're starting to search and they're, they're wanting to look at cars and we're seeing that across the board. And so we've shifted back into the central messaging, but we're also watching it very closely because you know, there are questions about whether there could be a resurgence um, and what that will look like. So we, we kind of are now moving forward with a couple of different plans ready to go just in case what happens. Um, but right now we're, we're back into the Sentra. We, um, we just revealed the um, 2021 Rogue, which is going to be this amazing SUV, which we're going to be launching later on this fall. So we're moving, you know, we're moving forward in that direction. But at the same time, understanding that we may need to shift again and tr and and preparing for that and and trying to be mindful that that may be a possibility yeah do you think that you've maybe trained some new muscles for yourself and for the team because you go back to march i remember this exact time that you're talking about because i was going to be in vegas march 10th i think it was like right around march madness uh and in three days i went from going there this trip with my wife and another couple to us not letting our kids go to their grandparents because it was too far away and we didn't know you now looking back you're like oh yeah that's fairly normal occurrence but at the time nothing like that had ever happened everyone was really scared as well and i can't imagine that in that fear people were closing deals on cars regardless right i imagine there was a big shift in not only in what your marketing plan was but all of a sudden the sales numbers are coming in every day and marketing is very closely tied to sales. So what was that moment like? And was there anything that, that you learned or muscles that you gained, marketing muscles that you gained during that time that you're taking forward? 
Yeah, I, I learned a lot and still learning. I, to me, the biggest thing is automotive, it dropped overnight and it dropped oh, more than 50%. And it was, it was steep and it was swift. And so at that point, you, you have to completely what, you know, put away what the, what the business plan was up until that time. And you have to really start to look at, okay, what does this look like? What does the plan look like that's significantly less than what we did? So we did that and it was, you know, that was in combination, you know, my counterpart on the sales side and on the product side, you know, what does that look like? What does this plan look like? And kind of the three of us came together and, you know, within a week we had a completely new business plan that before that had taken kind of eight months to prepare. Um, I think the new muscle memories, I think, um, you know, to me, it's, it's taking quick actions. I think you being able to assess data and assess the situation very quickly and react and decide and then react. And that to me, you know, I think those aren't new things and that's part of the normal process. It's the speed in which we had to do it, um, which I think very much accelerated things. I think it was also working very closely and we already did, but working really closely, you know, with my core peers, you know, in sales in you know, kind of our marketing operations team with our leadership on what are the actions that we need to take in order to stimulate the small amount of demand that will be out there. And that was really around people that needed support and they needed transportation mm. and then, and then start to do a little bit of short-term planning, you know, while, and then pick back up on the long-term planning. So I think there's, you know, it, it's the speed of it. I think, and we, we were just having this conversation earlier this week, but I think we also, it was great to see us come, you know, be able to do an entire creative process in a matter of 48 hours. You know, that was, you know, you're not able to shoot anything. So you're working in edit, um, but we were able to, you know, get a concept, approve it and traffic it and, and get it out and start the distribution process within a couple of days, within 48 hours, which is pretty unheard of. Um, and we were joking around that, you know, now, now we need to get back into a little bit more of a normal cadence so we can stop operating at a just in time. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think it's almost like we, we overtrained ourselves a little bit. Um, but I, I, but you, you do what you have to do in these situations. And we, we broke down, you know, any bureaucracy that was there, which wasn't really that much, broke that down, broke down the levels of approval, um, and, and really just got down to who are the core people that need to be a part of this discussion, and then how do we move things forward? And just, you know, remove any of the barriers that were there. And I think the reality is that there weren't even that many barriers, it was just about the speed. It yeah. just came, it came to being about speed. We'll be back to the episode in just a few seconds. But first, we have some exciting news for you. At Pressboard, we love stories, but we know how hard it can be to measure them. So we're here to help, whether it's a sponsored article on a news site, an Instagram post from an influencer, or a video on YouTube. Our tech measures it all. Pressboard is already trusted by Spotify, Intel, NBC Universal, Hearst, and thousands more. And here's the big news. Listeners of the podcast can try out the Pressboard platform for free. Just email info at pressboardmedia.com right now. All right, let's get back to the show. It's interesting. I've, I've seen this in business before. There's a recession and then people cut their expenses and you realize, wait a minute, I could do this without this expense budget. 
Yeah. Or you plan something and everything takes three months until it has to take 48 hours and then it happens within 48 hours. Because this was a big launch, like the all new Sentra, uh, it's Brie Larson, right? That is a part of this, uh, which is like, she's, I mean, my entire family loves her. I've got two boys, they watch the movies, right? And my wife knew her before, like through a lot of filmography. Um, and so you have this, uh, and she's also having this big career moment that's happening right now. Yeah. So, and Nissan, you know, you have her in this commercial, you're ready to launch it. This is, I imagine this is a big deal inside the marketing department as well as across the company. So tell us about why, I'm actually curious about, because this decision to have Brie Larson was involved a lot before the pandemic ever hit or before any of this was happening. Tell us about why Brie Larson and what that meant to the brand. Sure. So for us, I, Sintra is, you know, up, you know, up until now it, it is, you know, it, it is the biggest launch for the company, you know, you know, up, up until kind of this moment and, and getting into a rogue launch. So very important for us. Um, it was a, it's an, it's been an important car for us from a sales standpoint. When we were looking at launching this next generation, we were looking for what are the product truths and the product truths they're there and they're, you know, they're, they can be very technical and it is about all of the advanced technology and also the performance in the car and the design. But more than anything, it was about the fact that there were no compromises that were made in the actual development and manufacturing and approach to this car. And I think the Sintra was probably well known for being a very um, affordable, maybe even cheap car. And this was definitely a different version of Sentra. And there was a journal, a journalist even called it the glow up. So, mm -hmm. so there was a glow up of the Sentra. It had all of this technology, it had all of this performance, and it was in this amazing design. And there were no compromises that were made to it. And so that became, you know, essentially the creative platform. And when we looked at initial ideas for the creative, we wanted to take that no compromises idea and how do you apply that in a way that people will find relevant. And so, you know, the original idea was around having this conversation in the car where there's, it's a player coach dialogue and you have someone that's mentoring somebody else who's kind of, who's at a crux, who needs to kind of advocate for themselves and then linking that to the car. And so that was the idea. And when we were looking at what is the right type of person to be the coach, we thought about it needs to be somebody who's, you know, is confident, but is approachable. Um, but in somebody that's kind of a superhero. And then from there it was and and Brie Larson was the, she was, you know, from the very beginning, she was somebody that we wanted to work with. And she was the top pick for this because we thought that she could really represent this idea of superhero and having this conversation and telling someone not to, you know, telling someone to advocate for themselves and not to compromise. And, you know, in the first, in the first discussion that we had with her, she was, she was first, you know, sometimes you don't, sometimes when you're working with celebrities, you don't, they don't necessarily want to talk to the brand. They just want to come in and do the job. And that's, I can understand that she wanted to talk to us and we wanted to talk to her as well and, and kind of develop this relationship and this partnership. And so, you know, she, she was asking all of the right questions, you know, asking about us and our values as a brand and, and where we're trying to go. And she really, um, the idea of no compromises resonated with her because it's how she, it's the approach she's taken in her career and in life. And so there was this kind of creative synergy that we found. 
And then, you know, on set, she just, she nailed it. I mean, she was, she's such a professional. She's also incredibly enjoyable to work with. And, you know, that was for all of us that were there, everyone on the set. It was, it was a great experience. Well, I think there's this interesting thing where you're, in a way you're giving up your brand to a different storyteller. In this case, you're very closely aligning with Brie as a person, not even as an actor uh, necessarily, because everything that Brie does in her life is going to affect the brand. And we've seen this with, with other people that are spokespeople. I mean, my name is Jared and Jared from Subway didn't do a lot of good stuff for the Jared <laughs> brand. Jared Leto is doing a decent job, but Jared from Subway kind of ruined us. Um, <laughs> I made a joke. I have two really good friends that are both named Karen. And I said, well, that's not fair. That's like, it's, I have some really good friends that are Karen and they're great. Right. Yes, but, I know. I know. but you can have, but there's this idea that uh, you're passing on a bit of the control of your brand to somebody else. Uh, in this case, I mean, it's Brie Larson. She's a professional. Uh, have you have you had that experience as well where you're passing off your brand to other storytellers? Often this is influencers. I know, I know you've worked in esports a bit. And I'm curious to hear, which is a very uh, misunderstood or, or not as understood area. Yeah, I yes. We have had a lot of learnings around esports. So we we started a relationship with FaZe Clan, which is one of the, the bigger, most well-known teams in esports. And if you're not familiar with esports, it's basically the biggest kind of sporting gaming community that there is. And what we did is we wanted to develop an, an influencer relationship. And we took a different approach in that we kind of took our hands off as a brand. We gave them cars, you know, we gave them kind of loose, you know, you know, bullet points and talking points about what to do with the cars, but really just let them create content because these guys know what, what their fans and on their platforms are looking for. Um, they know how to tell their own story. And then it was more about how do you know how do you weave that in and, and giving them the vehicles was part of that, but just having them live their daily lives and, and Nissan is a part of it. And it was, you know, I we had a lot of internal discussions about, you know, how much do you, you know, how much do you try to guide what that is, or how much do you take your hands off? And we made the, you know, I made the decision we need to just take our hands off and let them do what they do best. And we looked at we looked at pre-exposure and post-exposure and what were the takeaways of Nissan as a brand. And it was massive perception shift mm -hmm. just from having them drive around in the cars and, and engage and do live their daily lives with Nissan as, you know, their form of transportation. And it was, it was things like we were probably middle of the road when it comes to, you know, kind of fun to drive or advanced technology and post-exposure, we were number one. And we were, we even beat a Silicon Valley based automotive company when it comes to advanced technology. And I think there, I think there were two things that helped to contribute to that. I think the first was having, having the phase guys tell the story in their own words um, and, and just having the car be there. And I, I think the other thing too, is that these are, these are consumers that probably haven't had any exposure to Nissan as a brand or have had very limited exposure to Nissan as a brand. So it was a new audience for us. And that was what made this really exciting. But I think the key learning and, you know, your point was it, it's, it is sometimes it's a risk. Um, and that's why you, there's a, there's a pretty steep vetting process, but it's also kind of talking to them, which is why I really appreciated the dialogues that I've had with Brie and just, you know, are you, is this a fit? 
um, you know, it's not just about come and work, come and be in my TV spot or, you know, be in a TV spot for this brand. It's, you know, is, does this align with what you're thinking? You know, can't, do you feel comfortable, you know, being a part of our brand journey or part of this product story? And that's why I think that those conversations are really important versus just having it be transactional. Yeah. Well, this idea of who's telling the story of Nissan, it keeps on going. You have, from your standpoint, you're the marketer, you have a certain guidelines, personas, like all this stuff that we as marketers have some control over. And then you pass it to a spokesperson. There's still quite a bit of control there. It's a closed set, nothing. It's not user-generated content. And you move over into phase clan, at least there's some briefing, some discussions, maybe some approvals that are still involved. But as you go further and further down to individuals, now you have owners of vehicles. So my sister owns a Rogue. My dad has an Altima. Um, I actually have a Volvo. So I, I'm, we're all tied into your history at some point. <laughs> One day I'll have a Porsche and a Mercedes, I guess, and then I can control the, the whole thing. But uh, you, if you think of influencers, as you go down and it's more and more democratized. Eventually you end up just regular people driving your cars and your SUVs and, and trucks and you, and you pass complete control over to them because they may say, my sister may say one day, she's like, I don't like it anymore. And I've bought, and that will have a bigger impact on me than every commercial with every star in the world. So uh, do you see a movement towards this as a marketer having less and less control over the message or, or is that not true? Um, I think, I mean, either way, I think, you know, especially in automotive, word of mouth is really important. So I think, I don't know, I don't think that that's necessarily a new trend. I think the platforms, how people talk about, you know, their opinions of their products, I think, you know, obviously that's much, there's much more infrastructure and platforms around that. I think, I don't think brands will ever fully give up control um, in a more user generated way. I think there will always be and I think as a brand, it's important to make sure that, you know, the, you're responsible for driving the positioning um, and kind of the discipline behind that. So I think that will always be there. But I think how do you bring this word of mouth point apart into it? I think that's what will evolve over time. And, you know, I, I, it, it has to do in the way that you kind of have those conversations and the way that you keep people in the brand and, and keep that loyalty is it's through product. Um, and it's through how you take care of those customers, you know, as their owners. And that's an important part. And that's why, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of work that we do with our product team to understand, you know, what are the, what are all the checks and balances that we have before we bring a product to market. And it's also why we work very closely with our dealer network on, um, you know, how do you bring a great customer experience to consumers when they come into the showroom? And so I think, I think user generated content that will, you know, there will, there will always be a role for that and how you embrace that as a brand um, will be, will be important. I do think that influencers are going to become a way more and more of a way that consumers are exposed to brands mm -hmm. and the way that they discover brands because the media landscape is changing so quickly. Um, you know, you have Generation Z who's never going to have watched live TV um, for the most part. And but they are discovering brands through social media, you know, through TikTok, through Instagram. And, you know, we as marketers need to understand that and be able to find a way that feels natural and organic, but right for the platform to introduce our products there. Yeah, 
there's also this interesting thing. So like I said, I have two boys. One of them is nine and, and he's does great in school and he's, you know, got his passions and plays sports. And I asked him what he's going to do. Cause I was so clear on what I was going to do when I was 12 years old, just be Angela Bauer, be as close to Angela <laughs> Bauer as possible. So I, I asked him, I said, what is it that you plan on doing? And I feel like we've, you know, raised him to think like all these opportunities are there for you. You can do anything. And he said, I want to be a YouTuber just straight out with no guilt towards it. And my reaction right away, I was like, well, let's look at some other things. Like let's keep those <laughs> doors open. But then you talk, you talk to other people and uh, like he watches Preston plays, which is this Minecraft, you know, watching another person play Minecraft. Uh, and there's this interesting thing that's happening that I don't think happened when we were growing up thinking about being in marketing, this idea that you could actually become the medium versus becoming the person that, that puts the puts the messages into the medium itself. So I do see that there's this movement towards people becoming media properties themselves or aspiring to be media properties themselves. And it'll be interesting to see see how that story that you start as, you know, the head of marketing with this story and then and being able to see how how far that game of telephone works and and does it make it out the other side have you yeah. ever had any um experiences with with influencers where it became that the uh the story was not the way you wanted it to be told or incorrect do you see that happening more and what, what do you do in those situations? I mean, I think with that, I mean, we've, we've kind of started our, our pro our you know, kind of our plan and our strategy with influencers really in the past year. And it has been, we're trying to kind of crawl before we walk. Um, and there are times when there, there are some things that, you know, maybe is not exactly what we, what we would like. And I, that's why I think it's important to have those relationships and to be able to talk through it. And I think if you get to the point where it's clear that it's, you know, there's not going to be this, you know, joint understanding of that, then you need to find a way to walk away from the relationship. Mm. Um, you know, I, I think, I think influencers are very, I think they're very open to to working with brands, obviously. Um, but it, it goes both ways because they understand their community. They understand their fans. And to a certain extent, they understand the platforms more than we do on our side. And so you have to trust them but they also need to be able to deliver on on the things that they're going to be contracted to do. Yeah. And so I think it's, it's having that open discussion um, and making sure and the vetting process is really important um, and ensuring that you're aligned from a value standpoint, from how you want to, what you want to say, they may have a different spin on how they tell the story. And that's when you kind of get into, okay, does that work? Um, so I think that that's there. What's been really interesting about influencers is actually through COVID and then and even into Black Lives Matter movement because it, everything in social media changed. And I think if you were an influencer that was promoting a brand or was, you know, you know, kind of whether it was fashion or if it was other types of products, all of a sudden it seemed very strange or it, it seemed disconnected from what was going on in the bigger picture. And so I think actually what you've seen and, and a lot of the successful influencers have understood how to do both. How do they be a part and use their platform as part of the social movement? But then also how do you, how do you bring you know, some of those brand relationships and partnerships into that? And, and sometimes they need to be kept completely separate and most of the time they, they probably are. But I, I, did, I did notice that, especially kind of in March and April, there was a little bit of what, 
do we do as influencers in this area? And even, even as brands aren't, you know, some of them aren't able to operate even. So yeah, it's, I, that's, it's a fascinating part. Um, and when you think about, you know, your son wanting to be a YouTuber, right? That's, what I, what I love right now about where we are in media and content is that if you have an idea, you can make it happen. If you, if you, anyone can be creative. And I think that that is so awesome. You know, sometimes you walk around and, you know, when, when I was able to travel, you know, you, you walk around and you, I would you know, be in these amazing places and it would be a full on photo shoot. I remember one time I was on the Brooklyn bridge going for a run and it was just a photo shoot after photo shoot after photo shoot. But I love that everyone is tapping into their inner creativity. I think that that, I think that that will make us all a better world sometimes. Yeah. I know that influencers in the wild and things like that, it can get kind of funny, but that in itself, that's also creativity. Yeah. I think uh, it reminds me of remember early blogger days where you could, you could have the weirdest, most niche interest in the world, but you just had now you have this platform and you found that, hey, there's, you know, there's 35 other people that are really into like very specific sourdough, right? So <laughs> you have these really interesting things. So um, the to switch gears, just to use an automotive term, but there, I love it. Uh, back to back to the idea of how because a lot of times I think the automotive industry is seen as a mature industry. I mean, cars have been around for a very long time. They work relatively in a similar fashion, drivetrains, et cetera. Um, is it a mature industry? Or if it isn't, then what, what excites you about it and its future? This is, yeah, I, I love this question. It is a mature industry in that it's it's heavy manufacturing. I mean, what we do is we you know we we manufacture and sell vehicles, so that in and of itself is mature. I think what we're going through right now and what's been kind of happening over the last couple of years probably is is massive transfer tra massive transformation and massive disruption in automotive. And when you think about where we are today, but where we're going to be in five years or in ten years with transportation and mobility and the role of the car, that's going to be very different. I also think the way that you, you know, what car ownership looks like is going to be very different. And what excites me right now is that I want to be a part of that transformation. I want to be a part of that disruption. And, th and that's what I'm, you know, I am part of it and I'm part of the one and I'm driving it. You know, I'm one of the people driving it at Nissan. Um, but, you know, when I think about, what car the role that cars can serve and it's much more than just a to b because you do have that emotional component but it is safety um you are the cars are so much more technologically advanced than they ever have been they're so much more connected that you can seamlessly get into the car and your phone is automatically playing what it was playing before you got in you know those are things that while they may seem simple are, are huge engineering feats but from a customer experience standpoint that's what they're looking for they're looking for something that's easy and seamless and even when you think about electric and how can we build a much more sustainable approach to mobility, um, electric is, is that's going to be the way of the future. What the timeline for that, I think that's still, I think we're still working through that, but that will be, that will be the main type of powertrain that we're going to have moving forward. And then even connected cars. And this is where it gets, you know, kind of minority report a little bit, but um, you know, when cars can talk to each other, what, how we manage that information and how we manage that data 
and, and what we do with it is going to be so incredibly important um, that I, you know, I'm, I, I enjoy and I'm humbled to be a part of those discussions about what we do with consumer data like that. Yeah, I think there's this technological shift that's happening within vehicles. At one time, it was about, you know, will the windows go up and down without me cranking them? And now it's, will my car just be a method that gets me to a place without me even driving it, right? It's, yeah. it's really, really an interesting space. And I think it's an exciting space to be in as a marketer because you are you're responsible for this narrative that's going on, but also, like, how do you communicate the idea of this super geeky technology stuff into a way that it makes sense to you know the average American family or, or in any place in the world is really interesting. Yeah, and I, yeah, and I, I I completely agree. And that that's kind of that's some of the fun of it. And it's you know it's working really closely with our R and D team and the engineers and the designers. And because usually there's a truth or consumer insight that drives that, and it's really getting into that and understanding that. Um, and then, you know, on our side, how do we creatively create that emotional connection between what the car can do and why consumers care, you know, and, and how do you do it in a way that isn't, it, it doesn't always have to be scary. It can be about giving you confidence. And that's what we try to do at Nissan. It's about demonstrating that you can be confident on the road. Um, and, that, and that's what we really try to focus on in the messaging. Yeah. Well, I'm, uh, I'm glad that you took this international marketing course because, and I imagine you are too, because at that time, did you ever imagine they'd be sitting down with movie stars and talking about self-driving cars and, and everything at that point, you could have been an accountant. You never know. <laughs> I know. And it, yeah, sometimes I think about it and I have to, I have to pinch myself sometimes because I do, you know, I, I think it's such a, I think it's such a joy to enjoy what you do every day and to wake up and to be motivated by. It. And that's not to say, I mean, it, it's tough. It's, you know, COVID's made it even more difficult, but I love what I do. And I, I happen to be, you know, marketing is where my heart is and, and cars are just, it's a passion of mine. So I feel very fortunate to be able to be in this industry and to be in a role where I can help drive change. It's incredibly, it's humbling. It's, um, and I don't, I, I feel the weight of it every day, um, but it's also what motivates me every day as well. Yeah, well, you never know. Maybe there's some 13-year-old kid and you'll be that person's Angela Bauer, right? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> you never know. Maybe. You, uh, you mentioned off, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close with a question about, you mentioned that you're a runner, so I imagine you're, what do you listen to when you're running? Is it, if it's not music, is it, I'd love to hear your favorite podcast or audio book or what it is that you listen to. Yep. So yeah, I've, podcasts are my jam. I listen to a ton of podcasts. My favorite one right now is Pivot. Um, so with Dana Swisher and Scott Galloway, I, I, because I think they cover everything, if it, marketing, technology, politics, culture. And so I, I love listening to that one. The New York Times Daily is a, is a good one. I listen to CMO moves and um, what, and then there's uh, the disruptor series. So those are the ones that are usually my go-to. I just listened to one called um, having it all in other lies, which I thought was really good. So that's one that I'm going to kind of add to my library, but those are usually the ones that I'll go through. And I'll, I listen to those, um, you know, when I'm running, I also listen to them, you know, if, if I am in my car. Um, but I, 
that I really like podcasts, radio. Sometimes it, it drives me crazy. I, I love music, but you know, all the commercials actually as a marketer, ironically, um, you know, I just feel like it, you listen to the same thing over and over again. And I feel like there isn't enough variance in music right now to really commit to listening to the radio, which is why I like to, why I like to listen to a podcast. Yeah. I'm similar. I like, I like listening to the daily and I'm listening to news one day and then you can just be listening to some murder mystery the next day and really, really change that up. So uh, thank you so much for being on the show today. Really appreciate it. I'm so glad that you took that international marketing course and, and saw that Porsche 911 when you were a kid. <laughs> it's been great talking with you. It's been great talking with you as well. Thank you for having me on. Thanks, Alice. All right. Thank you so much for tuning into the Science of Storytelling. Don't forget to leave us a comment. We love hearing from you. We have a ton more episodes coming up this season with some absolutely amazing guests. So make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single one. See you next time.